whenever you write that the heat was stifling or she rummaged in her handbag, <laughs> uh, this is dead free, you know. <laughs> yes. and, and by the way, I mean, the, the war has extended onto another sphere. People who use mouldering novelties like seen it, done it, got the t-shirt, he went ballistic, I don't think so, hello, <laughs> all that, th these, are, these are dead words, they're heard words. And what cliche is, is heard writing, heard thinking, and heard feeling. You've got to look for weight of voice and freshness and, and make it your own. Columnist for The Times and podcast reviewer, who one must assume only appears on the very best, James Marriott has invited me over to his pad for episode five of My Martin Amos. James, thank you very much for having me over. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you for bothering to come out in this hideous weather to uh, record me. This is exactly what we would expect for this time of year. And we are just a stone's throw from London Fields, as it happens here, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, the London Fields. Although it doesn't actually feature in the novel, does it? No. And as I say that, I realise that Stone's Throw is going to be the first of many cliches that will probably leave my mouth. That is, of course, the theme. We are going to be talking on this episode about The War Against Cliché, Martin Amos's collection of essays and reviews spanning 1971 to 2000, published in 2001. I first read it aged 18 in what must have been 2006, and you, when you were about 22, in 2014, I think you write. It was a transformative experience for myself and clearly for you too. How did you first come across it? I came across it completely at random. I'd never been, as I think most of your other guests have said, a kind of obsessive Amos fan in my teens. I'd read a few of the novels in a sort of slightly obligatory way. I'd discovered them, you know, in bookshops. I'd seen his name around. I think I'd read Time's Arrow, The Rachel Papers, Success, a few a few of the novels, but they'd never actually, they'd never particularly done much for me. I'd never had that transformative Amos experience, which, you know, virtually everybody else seems to have had. And then I moved to London. I had this idea I was going to start writing book reviews. And I picked up The War Against Cliché in Paul's Books, I think was the shop. And it's still there on the Charing Cross Road. Bought it, I think it was like three ninety nine or something. Took it home. And by the end of the evening that I bought that book, I was like, I'm learning so much about writing that I couldn't have even begun to imagine existed. And yeah, I sort of it's a kind of cliche that Amos would obviously deplore to say that books are life-changing, but... We should probably have something that makes a noise yeah, we have, every we time, cliche, we, every we, time cliche, we use a cliche. We should have a cliche buzzer. Although, <laughs> unfortunately, probably I'll just end up with non-stop buzzing noise. Um, <laughs> but in a kind of practical sense, it is a book that changed my life because it completely changed the way that I write. Um, it changed my impression. It changed all my ideas about journalism, about all, kind of what I wanted to do with my life because before that book, I had really believed that poetry was where it's at. I kind of probably slightly absurdly in hindsight, wanted to be a poet. I sort of viewed prose as this slightly inferior entertainment somewhere. I mean, these kind of ludicrous ideas you have when you're 21 years old, I think I probably viewed it somewhere on a level with like TV. You know, I read novels as entertainments, but it hadn't really occurred to me that prose could be artistic and beautiful. And it was, it seems preposterous I'd managed to carry that prejudice with me until the age of 21. And this book basically exploded those stupid adolescent snobberies and show me that prose could be artful and that even journalism could be artful and I think this is the book when I decided that actually I wasn't going to be a poet which by the time I'd moved to London and realized how expensive life was uh was seeming increasingly uh an unlikely aspiration and made me think I wanted to be a journalist and there might be something worthwhile to be done in journalism because I mean 
it contains some of the greatest journalistic writing ever, basically, in my opinion. I can relate completely to that experience of aspiring to be poet and then novelist and then ending up in journalism as the best compromise <laughs> in, in, a, in a real material world. It's interesting what you say there, though, about viewing prose as entertainment and perhaps looking down on it slightly. I mean, why was that? You must have read things like Flaubert and Joyce and novels that really showed you that it didn't have to be pedestrian and, and utilitarian writing. I'm exaggerating somewhat, but I, I think I was I was a superficial reader. You know, I tore through novels. Uh, I spent a lot of time poring over poetry. And yeah, I had never really... I obviously understood to some degree that prose could be artistic, but I was young and, you know, I thought novel. I thought novels were about plot and character and ideas, hence why I loved Iris Murdoch so much uh, right, in, right. My, in my early 20s. And she was your, your literary hero at yeah, the time. Yeah, who was sort of another thing that was... Ex my kind of admiration for Iris Murdoch was another thing that was exploded by this book. I've now been turned into such a Murdoch skeptic by Amos's sort of demolishing reviews early in, the, early in this book that I, I always recall this image that I think is in a biography of Iris Murdoch of her sitting at a train station, writing a page, turning it over, writing another page, turning it over. And she just went through like this, writing very quickly, with great certainty, with great command of things like plot and character, but not at all in a way that I think Amos would aspire to write or even particularly approve of, uh, because, you know, she doesn't pay much attention to the sentence, really. Mm. I mean, there's some beautiful sentences in there, but it's a much quicker, much more kind of... Um, it's closer to entertainment than it is to true, true. Prose. And yet so intellectually robust. I mean, we're talking about Iris Murdoch a lot here. I I knew before I started this conversation with you that we might end up talking <laughs> an awful lot about her rather than about Amos. It sounds to me like you discovered the war against cliche really by accident. Did it really just jump out of the shelf for you? Yeah, it's sort of funny. I mean, it's one of those. I suppose in hindsight, I was all I was always going to read it because literally everybody I now know who's a journalist has read it and in, and been influenced by it. So it was only a matter of time before it came into my right, okay. into my kind of uh, awareness. But it did seem to come at random. And I think quite late, actually. Most people I know read it when they were 18, when they are about your age. Um, what was the first... Um, here we go. Another cliche. There goes the buzzer. Light bulb moment. I think it was... And this is one of the extracts I've got to read out. I don't know when you want to do that, but it was... Yeah, why not? Let's start early. This made me... I just thought this was so funny, so beautifully written. Uh the tone, the authority just blew me away. And this was a review not of a famous novel or anything, you know, particularly remarkable. It was a kind of one of those slightly gimmicky reviews that Amos was made to do early in his career. He reviewed things like the Guinness Book of World Records. And he'd reviewed a book called Who's Who in 20th Century Literature by Martin Seymour Smith. And he takes the piss out of this guy, Martin Seymour Smith, for basically knowing way too much about literature, which just struck me as such a funny inventive way to approach a book and it's just it's full of great lines and it really i just remember cackling to myself sitting in my sitting in my bedroom reading this and i just thought i had no idea that writing could be this funny and this i, I this clever and this smart and it really it's a kind of no one ever talks about this review and it's probably not the best one in the book but it always is the one that i remember sort of switching me on to how, how funny his writing could be. All right, let's hear it. So this is Martin Amos, a young critic, reviewing a book called Who's Who in 20th Century Literature by Martin Seymour Smith. And the conceit of the review is that Amos is very amusingly taking the piss out of Seymour Smith for knowing quite so much about literature. So he writes, A bemusing habit of Seymour Smith's is to make a remark of truly galactic learning 
and then dwarf it by revealing a whole new universe of bibliomania in the background. Daniel Fogunwa is the first important writer in Yoruba, and Dogboju Ode Ninu Igbo Inumale is assuredly his best book. Ah, but he did not build up an account of Yoruba cosmogony as poetically as did Tutola. The Icelander Haldor Laxness's fiction, where all agreed, is not wholly integrated. Were you aware, however, that he owed much to the untranslated Forgabor Fordarsson, who is perhaps the superior writer? Similarly, opinions so exotic that you can't imagine anyone human holding them are frequently made to sound banal and second-hand by the world-weary Seymour Smith. It is now fashionable, for instance, to dismiss his poetry while acknowledging his enormous influence. Who might this be? Ruben Dario, the Nicaraguan poet who died in 1916. Well, if it is fashionable, I shall start dismissing Dario's poetry at once, while naturally acknowledging his enormous influence. How, you wonder, can Seymour Smith keep in touch with so many cultures? Do people ring him up from time to time and say, someone else has learned to read and write down here? I went through the book half expecting the X section to be the longest. There, surely, are all the really unknown writers who would find a home. Opinions so exotic that it's hard to imagine any human holding them. It's just, I think, brilliantly funny. And also, the longer I have read this book, the more I realise that part of the irony of that passage, and perhaps part of why Amos is so funny in it, is that a lot of the criticisms he makes of this guy, Martin Seymour Smith, with his pretensions to galactic learning mm. and having the authority opinion on every writer could quite easily apply to Martin Amos himself. And one of the criticisms people make of this book is that he adopts this tone of potentially preposterous authority about basically everything. He seems to have the belief that he has the final word on every writer and poet. And it's full of these marvellously epigrammatic sentences that seem to sum up, you know, a literary tradition of a whole country or a writer's career in these sort of wonderfully neat, often wonderfully funny little formulas that are brilliant to read, but are, you know, a different kind of criticism to a less sort of, you know, to the sort of, he's not a critic who is taking, you know, a lot of time to carefully judge his statements, weigh whether or not something or not might be true. He's opinionated and has these kind of unbelievably opinionated, um, ideas about people which are just kind of which are just wonderful to read and especially as a young reader you know this is how you this is how you want to be told about literature this this world of amos is where there are kind of hierarchies of talent everybody's looking for the great american novel what is it he thinks obviously that it was written by saul bellow it's just kind of marvelously invigorating so i just remember all these sort of um amazing statements he makes that I've, i wrote a few of them down um J.G. Ballard's talent is one of the most mysterious and distempered in modern English fiction, and it is by far the hardest to classify. How are you the most distempered talent in modern English fiction? What on earth does that mean? A critical person might say, does Amos exactly know what it means? But it's these kind of wonderfully authoritative, wonderfully eccentric judgments that make the book so much so much fun. Uh, I remember another, another one. V.S. Pritchett's short stories are retrospective, provincial, formless, and feminine. How does he know? Who, where does that judgment come from? What does that even mean? But it's really, I mean, it's un unbelievably entertaining. Um, even if you might, as you get a bit older, doubt, you know, whether it is the most 
response, boringly responsible way to do criticism. But I think that is what a lot of what I responded to initially in the book. In this book, I think we get Amos the Cavalier journalist, sometimes referred to as an aspirant journalist because it wasn't his natural habitat. You you write in, in your article for The Times that uh, I'm quoting here, Amos is a strict rule-giving paternal figure many young men seek in early adulthood. Nowadays, they have Jordan Peterson and his 12 Rules for Life. Uh, I recently read your article about that experience too. It's an experience I've had and um, very much concur with your (laughs) take on it. Um, My friends and I had Martin Amis and The War Against Cliché. He taught us to write, to avoid repetition and alliteration in our prose, to be on guard for inept jangling rhymes, and even to try not to use words of a similar etymological derivation on the same page. There is a difference morally, you see, for literature matters like life. We were warned against not just cliches of the pen, but cliches of the mind and cliches of the heart. Now, that last line, I think, really gets to why this book hits home. The message is simple, isn't it? And it's undeniably true. If you loaf in thought and feeling, your writing will only just about stand up with anything you can borrow. But if you think and feel rigorously and put the time in, you will make, as a journalist friend of mine recently described, beautiful objects. How has this influenced your writing? Yeah, I mean, immensely. I I mean, I can hardly claim that it's, you know, an important or interesting thing to have influenced my writing, but certainly nobody has influenced it more than Martin Amis. If you aspire to write, you know, interesting and funny journalism, the the war against cliche is just chock full of rhetorical ideas, little strategies, ways of opening pieces, uh, ways of especially managing... To write a book review. I, it's taught me, because so, about the time that I read The War Against Cliché, I was beginning to write book reviews. And it is, the book review is such a dangerous form because it's so, it's so potentially boring. And you can read, you know, every year you can read hundreds of boring, badly written book reviews in, in newspapers. And there are so many pitfalls they fall into. The tedious recitation of the book's contents or the book's plot. It's a re- you have to say what a novel is about, but it's often an incredibly boring thing to hear somebody explaining a novel to you, the plot of a book that you may not read. I always say it's a bit like telling someone your dreams. It's this kind of made-up story that you may never encounter or engage with. It's very hard to make that interesting. Um, the way that um, the kind of often in a badly written book review, you have the slightly obligatory mention of a book style. You know, you go through, the book is about this, it's about a man who does this, falls in love with blah, the book, you know, won't quite tell you the ending and the style is like this and there are too many adjectives and this sort of slightly rote way of separating out these various contents of a novel you know plot style but martin amos's reviews have this kind of wonderfully integrated quality the passage from the martin uh, seymour smith book review that i that i just read out you almost don't notice that in the course of being extremely funny and doing this incredibly witty brilliant piss take of this guy martin seymour smith Amos is also telling you what's in the novel and you barely notice it. And often in a badly written book review, this is the really dull thing you have to endure as being having the contents of the book laid out in a really banal way. And yet that that most dutiful, tedious thing your reviewer has to do, tell you what's in this book that you're probably not going to read, he just makes it into this wonderfully playful, brilliant comic excursion. And it's just always been such a warning to me that you can always make even the most dutiful things that you have to do in, in a bit of writing um, funny and brilliant. And I often f- regularly, maybe always fail, but it's just always a warning. You can always be funny. You can always be clever. You can always find an interesting or unusual approach to something if you really try.
try and think hard enough. It's not just a cerebral act, is it? You have to be able to feel and be open to feeling. Yes, although with Amos, I think this is a point on which I'm beginning to find that I diverge from him. He says in somewhere in experience, he says, style is morality. He's a kind of style supremacist. The most important thing about writing is its style, is the kind of swagger and um, ability with which you carry off the writing of sentences. And I increasingly think it's a lovely idea and it's one that, you know, is very exciting to believe in, especially when you're, you know, 22 years old. I, I can no longer quite go along with him. And I think if you were to make a criticism of this book, which is, you know, it's my favorite book of criticism, but if you were to criticize it, you would say it's a bit too style focused. Uh, I'm not sure that Amos is aware that there are other great things that books can do that are just as important to style as as, as he should be. Um, What what would those things be? Well, I think about someone like James Wood, who might be, you know, the other great, a bit later than Amos, but they were writing, you know, at at the same time for a while, uh, who's a the New Yorker's, I think, chief book reviewer at the moment, and is the other is the kind of great critic of the early 21st century. And he has a kind of human attention, an emotional engagement. He's interested in the ways that writing kind of authentically reflect our feelings. He's interested in things being sad or um, emotionally true in a way that is simply not a theme of Amos is writing. I, I I think Amos may have thought this is true of him, but I think the criticism is so sort of aesthetically supremacist. He's really, where he's alert and most engaged and most interesting and most funny is on criticizing prose in the sentence level. And some of that other kind of human emotional stuff, I do think this book misses. And I think the idea that style is morality is an interesting and provocative and brilliant one, but I think it's not wholly true. And if the book has weaknesses, it lies in that sort of, in that... Um, in that idea. I'd love to ask you in a moment about books that you went on to read of Amos's after The War Against Cliché. This was kind of your gateway to Amos. Well, do you know what? This is going to make you make me a complete heretic to your uh, to your readers. I've never really loved a Martin Amos novel. Uh, kicking me off the podcast now. The, the <laughs> Martin Amos book I read after The War Against Cliché was Experience, mm-hmm. uh, which I absolutely loved. Okay. And it was really wonderful. That's my second favourite Martin Amos book. I mean, I've probably read something like most of them now and i've never an inside story inside story i liked i liked a lot and yeah i liked it for its similarities to the war against cliche because that is another book that's full of rules about writing how to be a novelist opinions on writers um but novel novel wise he's just i'm i know i'm wrong on this and i know that you know the consensus of intelligent people is against me personally it's never it's never quite been my thing and i find the the thing that puts me off the novel is this slightly, I find, strained, effortful attempt to be hip and with it and, you know, uh, down with the kind of low life in a way that I find a little bit unconvincing. And I am always more convinced and I find more natural the Amos of the War Against Cliché, who is this slightly more fogeyish, slightly more, um, I guess, kind of bookish figure. And that maybe reflects my own prejudices. You know, we all want to see ourselves reflected back in the writers we love, and maybe that's an aspect of myself that I'm wanting to get out of Martin Amis. Fair enough. So I, I did not know this about you, but it obviously seems that you are much more convinced and much more appreciative of Martin Amis, the the journalist, than the novelist. Yes, and I, I think that's not that's not you know, which I think is a testament to his journalistic ability. Yeah, and I don't think that's a totally unusual opinion, but the fact I hold it is probably also part of my own, you know, down to my own personal prejudices and tastes, rather than to like some any 
I'm not pretending to make some final judgment on Martin Amis. That is, you know, that's a lot of that is about me. Kingsley Amis's memoirs are also very good. I don't know if you've ever had a chance I've to not, read I've those. I've not read them. Also, some very interesting anecdotes on various writers he's met and had to endure time with, particularly Roald Dahl and Dylan Thomas, where I think Dylan Thomas talking about having travelled to the Middle East, saying that he was there to pour water on troubled oil, to which Kingsley Amis then says, I didn't say this, but I wish I had. What the hell do you mean? That doesn't mean anything. It's not clever and it's not funny. You know, he goes on this. Yeah, Dylan Thomas is precisely the kind of person exactly. Kingsley Amis would have hated. <laughs> he really <laughs> did. It's like that line you wrote about how the men on the highlands are piping hot. They're not piping and they're not hot. You know, it goes <laughs> on and on like this. Anyway, you write that this book now sits on your desk chiding you to be funnier, be cleverer, pay more attention. What are the moments that you find yourself reaching for it? Is it to remind yourself of certain things? Does it give you energy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't read The War Against Cliché without wanting to start writing a book review because this, I mean, it's not an art form, this form that, you know, can seem so sort of work a day and dull. And it's the thing that a lot of people start off doing at the beginning of their careers, you know, churning out book reviews for not much money is a kind of real way into journalism. And it suddenly makes it seem like the most glamorous, the most important thing to do. And I think it shows you what a demanding form the book review is. You know, you have to be aesthetically alert. You have to have a kind of good historical sense. You have to have a strong sense of the writer you're, the writer under review's entire career. Uh, you have to yourself be a good writer. You have to be short and epigrammatic because often you haven't got enough space. And there's a, there's a place, um, Leah Robson pointed this out to me again. There's somewhere Amos lists all the various literary art forms uh, from most to least demanding. And I think he says, the most demanding is poetry. The second most demanding is the book review. The third most demanding is fiction. And Amos viewed the book review as harder to get right than the novels, which, I mean, is probably a little bit ridiculous, but it does speak to his sense of what a kind of potentially rich and um, rigorous form or rigor, what, what kind of rigorous talent it requires to do, write book reviews as brilliant as the ones in The War Against Cliché are. You mentioned beginning your writing career wanting to be a poet. Martin Amis never wrote poetry. Alan Kingsley, I think it's recorded in experience, demanded to know why. He just can't do it, he said. I'm just no good at it. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. I mean, I suppose Amos's writing tends to be quite demotic, minutely observant, uh, down in the rough and tumble of life. And poetry often requires a slightly more kind of mystical sense. It kind of comes from a slightly different place, I think. And you can see why it's not the kind of writer Amos Amos was. And that's like kind of mysticism that often hangs around poetry is clearly why, as you mentioned, Kingsley Amos really disliked Dylan Thomas and basically viewed him as a fraud, I think. And I think there's a kind of maybe an inherited suspicion of the you know, potential kind of waftiness and mysticism of poetry, which obviously is reflected in Kingsley Amis's uh, own poetry, which is, you know, yes. poetry re this very kind of deliberately, determinedly prosaic, novelistic, full of kind of everyday details in a way that is quite unusual. And, you know... Do you know the poetry of Ian Hamilton much? A little bit. I'm a bit of an Ian Hamilton sceptic. Okay. I know that he admired Hamilton's poetry a lot, but it had that very taciturn Yes, exactly. And I think to it. They avoided that mysticism. But you see, I think Martin Amis's emphasis on style was Martin Amis, the modern mystic of literature. Yes. And, and, and I, th I think it's true that actually maybe the reason he didn't write poetry was that because 
it, I mean, his prose is extremely, it has a lot of the virtues of poetry. Yes. Um, beautiful phrasing. He's obsessed with rhythm. He's obsessed with sentences, chiming euphoniously. Nothing is supposed to sound clunky or out of place. And these are the kind of, that's the kind of attention that poets habitually apply to their poems. Most prose writers are not thinking about mm. rhythm, lack of internal rhymes, carefully evening out, things like that. And I think perhaps, yeah, he's he's a prose writer with a kind of, you know, the po the poetic impulses in his prose skill. What would be your next excerpt? So this is from a review of Odd Jobs, Essays and Criticism by John Updike. Beckett was the headmaster of the writing as agony school. On a good day, he would stare at the wall for 18 hours or so, feeling entirely terrible. And if he was lucky, a few words like never or end or nothing or no way might brand themselves on his bleeding eyes. Whereas Updike, of course, is a psychotic center of volubility. Emerging from one or another of his studies, he's said to have four of them, with his morning sack full of reviews, speeches, reminiscences, think pieces, forewords, prefaces, introductions, stories, playlets, and poems. Preparing his cup of sanka over the singing kettle, he wears his usual expression, that of a man beset by an embarrassment of delicious drolleries. The telephone starts ringing. A science magazine wants something pithy on the philosophy of subatomic thermodynamics. A fashion magazine wants 10,000 words in his favourite colour. No problem. But can they hang on? Updike has to go upstairs again and blurt out a novel. Why have you chosen this excerpt? I mean, for no real good reason other than I just think it's brilliantly funny. It's very novelistic, actually. In that, in that excerpt, Amos kind of turns Updike into the sort of character who might appear in one of his own novels. You know, that um, kind of typical Amos habit of exaggeration. These kind of, he turns Updike into this larger-than-life character. With, you know, with his four studies, I, I mean, we have to assume that's a true detail, his kind of huge Santa sacks of reviews and essays and stuff. And it's just talking about how to make this potentially very boring form interesting is just such a wonderful example. And, you know, I think that the phrase, a psychotic Santa of volubility is just one of those unbelievably, like, wonderfully hilarious, brilliant, yes, yeah. epigrammatic Amos phrases that he excels in. But you also notice that in that passage, which is just purely funny and enjoyable to read, he's kind of started telling you what's actually in this collection of criticism and reviews that Updike has written, you know, the stuff on thermodynamics, the stuff in his favourite colour, and he's kind of weaving in these sort of like boring details that any reviewer has to get out of the way to tell the reader what's actually in the book. But doing it so, so funnily, you barely notice it's happening to you. I mean, that is maybe a slightly kind of banal thing to focus on but it's one of the things that always preoccupies you as a book reviewer is how do you dispatch the duller obligations of book reviewing as wittily and as funnily and as interestingly as possible i love amos's novels you've written but it was always a qualified love you said just then but you never really got into his novels but a qualified love what do you mean by this i i guess i mean kind of what i said to you before which is that they're just not my thing and Perhaps if I'd encountered the war against cliché earlier, Amos would have, you know, shaped my taste enough that he would make me the kind of person ready to really love and appreciate Amos's novels, which I think is the kind of um, what all critic novelists are trying to do in their criticism is trying to give their readers the taste, which will make them think that they're a really brilliant novelist because they're doing all the things that they value in their criticism. But I've just, I, the novels I've just... I can appreciate them. I can see. I can. I can see they're brilliant. I, I read the information for the first time actually early this year. 
was clearly wonderful, but they're not, they've never been the novels that I've loved most. And that is because, yeah, just, I, I think is the slightly exaggerate, the exaggerated characters, the lack of interest in psychological realism are just go against my prejudices as a reader of novels. And, you know, that's not a final opinion. That's just my kind of personal, that's just my personal taste, I guess. I'm going to quote a, a chunk from the first chapter of The War Against Cliché here, where Martin Amis, setting out his stall, writes, Literary criticism, now almost entirely confined to the universities, thus moves against talent by moving against the canon. Anyone listening now will feel that this is even more relevant today than it was when he was writing at the beginning of the 21st century. He says, Academic preferment will not come from a respectful study of Wordsworth's poetics. It will come from a challenging study of his politics his attitude to the poor, say, or his unconscious valorization of Napoleon. And it will come still faster if you ignore Wordsworth and elevate some, justly, neglected contemporary, by which process the canon may be quietly and steadily sapped. A brief consultation of the internet, he's writing about it like the Yellow Pages back in 2001, will, will show that meanwhile, at the other end of the business, everyone has become a literary critic, or at least a book reviewer. You got yourself into some, well, by Twitter standards, not very hot water, but still with, I think, a writer from the bookseller who took umbrage with your suggestion that there could be, as Amos really fights for in this book, good versus bad literature. Has this book left you with a sense that that is still worth defending? I think that some books are better than others and there's nothing you can do about it. And that some people who are literary critics, like Martin Amos, have really excellent taste and their opinions on which are the good books and which of the bad books are unusually worthwhile. That said, you know, subjective opinion is always subjective and anybody setting out, this is the best kind of, this is the best of this sort of novel, this is the worst of this sort of novel, you risk obviously being preposterous and you can you can take it too far. But yeah, so I think the backlash you're talking about, and I can never quite remember what piece it was that annoyed this person at the bookseller, but I think I'd written something about TikTok and implied that watching TikTok videos was a less useful and virtuous use of one's time than reading a novel. And then I was quite amusingly, I thought, taken to task by this in of all magazines, the bookseller magazine, which is the magazine of the book trade, uh, for my belief that some writing is simply better. Uh, and then I, uh, the, this person said, I don't believe Marriott's implication exists in isolation but is a symptom of a belief that some writing is simply better. While there is not enough space here to dive into the specifics of this subjectivity, it is enough to say that it is inherently damaging and marginalising to extol the virtues of some books and thus their readers over others. Which is like the least Martin Amis opinion it's possible to hold. The idea that it's damaging to think that some books are better than others. And I think the fact, I don't know, just the way that that article was written, it's not even really arguing that you know, some books aren't better than others, that's kind of taken as almost a given in how we read books. And I think that is probably because that's an increasingly prevalent way of reading books at universities and the way that reading is taught at universities. And some people have evidently left universities with the idea that it's damaging to say some books are better than others, which kind of makes life slightly difficult for the literary critic or for the book reviewer, because your entire job is saying which books are better than others. And if you want to do it properly, I think you really have to believe that. But you are writing against a culture that is really aghast at the idea that someone might think they have the authority 
the pomposity probably these you know these sort of critical people would think to come in and start saying this book's good this book's bad you're better off reading Nabokov than you know a bestseller a best-selling thriller or something like that and I think yeah the environment that you're writing into now as a book reviewer is a more hostile one than the one that perhaps Martin Amos was writing into where I think a lot of people still believed in, you know, the subjective power of the great critic. Yeah, Martin Amos was very much, he knew which way the wind was blowing, but he was still writing at a time where critics and really novelists like himself had rule of the roost. Probably important to say that, you know, this is hardly a new idea in criticism and writing about books. I think periodically through history, this idea comes along that literature and art should be judged by political rather than aesthetic Um categories and terms and you know value value judgments should be political not not aesthetic and it's sort of unfortunate to live through this to live through such a time but it's happened before you know there were kind of if if you look at a lot of kind of 19th century late 19th century russian literature was filled with debates over were novels politically worthwhile uh did they support or not support this or that kind of version of liberalism or socialism or whatever yes. it happened in in England in the 1930s, there's a lot of very political literature and a lot of literature being judged on its political tendencies. And it's a kind of irresistible temptation, especially in very highly political times like the ones that we live in, to start saying everything must be submitted to politics. Politics is the ultimate value. Literature is this kind of secondary thing. And I think it's an approach that it's an approach to literature that's so dull and so uninteresting and so liable to reduce it to kind of large, bland, dull, boring categories that it's unsustainable and it never lasts. But it's kind of unfortunate that it's a time we're living through and people who, I guess, slightly fogishly believe in the supremacy, supremacy of aesthetics over politics, like I do, are always going to be kind of writing against the spirit of the times, which is not a wholly bad thing, you know, not a wholly bad position for a writer to find him or herself in. Implication, isolation, too many shouldn'ts in that <laughs> sentence. Um, yeah, yeah. Jangles. Yeah, yeah. But Amos wasn't immune to excesses in his own prose. He did overuse certain devices. He was very fond of adverbs. And this is something that a former guest on the series, Janang Ganesh, also spoke about. I find his use of them, yeah, conspicuous, excessive, sometimes a bit wearying, but quite contagious. He makes you want to use adverbs. Yeah, oh Do you my find God, that? he does ever. I mean, nobody has ever been a more, I guess, exciting proponent of the adverb than Martin Amis. I think, well, maybe it's useful. There's a there's a really great review by Frank Commode in the LRB of The War Against Cliché. And he, in the course of this review, just draws up a list of Martin Amis's unusual adverbs, which I can read to you if you're interested. Absolutely. So in Frank Commode's review of The War Against Cliché in the LRB, just a great piece, he makes a list of all the unusual adverbs that Amis uses in the book. It's a really, it's really... It's really good fun. So we've got beamingly upbeat, lurchingly written, deeply unshocked, tremendously unrelaxed, fruitfully uneasy, janglingly discursive, remorselessly indulgent, scarily illusionless, hugely charmless, promiscuously absorbed, customarily rotted, chortlingly habituate, finessingly cruel, implacably talented and bicker halitotically which is just the kind of most extraordinarily exotic list of unusual adverbs and you know as you were saying it does kind of make you want to go and use 
a lot of weird adverbs yourself, which is, I think, almost the tell of people who have been influenced by this book. And I spot it in myself and I spot it in other writers my age, that that weakness for the exotic recherche adverb is just quite impossible to resist. Which from that list do you like most and which do you find most fantastical? I, I mean, I kind of, I kind of guiltily love them all, and I can't help loving them all. Uh, I love janglingly discursive. I think that's kind of wonderful. I mean, it's sort of a bit hard to talk about them, shorn, shorn of their context. I guess those adverbs are there because Martin Amos's War Against Cliche has taken him to always be careful to choose unusual words, and I think some very common cliche formulations in writing are pairings of. Adject, um, of adverbs and um, and verbs. So he's clearly, this is an area of his writing where he's made great effort to avoid those cliched formulations. And I think the other advantage of the unusual adjective is that it gives this sense that you've got a really unusual, original opinion on something. So very few people are ever going to observe of a book that it's lurchingly written. But when you do make that observation... It suddenly really sounds like you know something about the book that nobody else does know about. And that's kind of the spell of Amos, is this really powerful, irresistible sense of authority that you kind of have to believe is earned, that is just expressed in these brilliant, ep epigrammatic, and unusual opinions. So let's go full circle and come back to Iris Murdoch. Yeah, this was one of the things that really struck me reading the book for the first time. I opened it up. I encountered these marvellously funny, brilliant passages that were instantly persuading me that Amos was the guy who knew about literature and had these, at the time it seemed to me, almost incontrovertibly brilliant opinions on it. And then, you know, the next few days flicking through this book, I discovered these really devastating takedowns of, of Iris Murdoch, who at the time was my absolute favourite favorite novelist, who I considered beyond reproach and yeah it was pretty kind of shaking experience to have your taste you know called into question quite so vigorously i won't stand in your way anymore james let's hear this excerpt so this is an extract from martin amos's review of iris murdoch's novel the philosopher's pupil uh which in taking apart this one novel he takes apart a lot of all of iris murdoch's other novels it would be futile to summarise the plot. Life is too short. The book is too long. But it is possible to offer a Murdochian paradigm, one that will serve, in fact, for all her fiction since the sacred and profane love machine. Imagine the teaching staff of a Toytown university. The men all have names like Hillary and Julian. The women all have names like Julian and Hillary. Everyone is on permanent sabbatical, but they look in each day to sample the hallucinogenic love potions available in the SCR. The twenty-stone economist loves the nonagenarian philologist, a nervous, obsessive, guilty, angry craving, who loves the alcoholic classicist, a painful, vertiginous, thrilling, urgent, pressuring feeling. The alcoholic classicist loves the deluded linguist, a sudden, piercing, and obsessive, jealous remorse, who loves the schizophrenic sociologist, feeling very, very sorry for him, feeling oh so much protective, possessive, pity, love, a sort of desperate sorry for affection. Meanwhile in the town, everyone talks in a strangely outdated slang. I still play bridge, but that's not your scene. While standing back in wonder as the campus hotheads do their stuff. 
James, thank you very, very much for coming on My Martin Amos to discuss The War Against Cliché. It's a book that I'll never stop picking up, as I'm sure you'll never stop picking up either. And it's been wonderful to understand how it's affected you, such that whenever I read one of your brilliant columns now, I'll know that it will have had a lot to do with it. Really a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank you for having me. 